Thank you guys uh, for, for passing the offering. I appreciate your uh, willingness to serve. These young, young, young people do an awesome job every single week. If you've got a Bible this morning, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 4. And uh, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Revelation called Behold the Throne. And if you're joining us this morning, and maybe you hadn't been here in a couple of weeks, or this morning's your first time, again, thank you for being here. Uh, you kind of caught us right at the end of chapter 4. We've been working through the book of Revelation, and so to, to, to somehow give a summary of where we've been would be absolutely uh, impossible, but let me just give a, a three or four sentence uh, summary as we begin this morning. We've been working through the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 4, and the last two weeks specifically... We've seen that the Apostle John, whom God used to write this epistle, this book, has been caught up. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it says, A door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things that must be, must be hereafter. And, and John, the Apostle John, has been raptured, if you will, so to speak, uh, into the very presence of God, before the throne of God, which we studied the last few weeks uh, in, in, in detail. And so I want to encourage you, go back to the church app, go and find the sermons on that, get caught up to speed. Man, John has transcended through our atmosphere, the sky, he's transcended through outer space, and he's really literally in the throne room of God. And this moment happens very specifically after Revelation 4 happens after Revelation 2 and 3. And so, uh, you know, smart people can figure that out, right? It, it, it comes after chapter 2 and 3. And, and the, the topic of chapters 2 and 3 is all about seven letters that Christ wrote to seven churches. And, and so there's, a, there's an interesting view of the book of Revelation where Revelation 2 and Revelation 3 give us a, a historical look at all of church history and then in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1, John, who absolutely is a picture, a type of the church, is caught up. He's raptured up into the very presence of God before the throne. And, and, and so the timing of Revelation chapter 4 is absolutely critical in your understanding of the book of Revelation. And again, as I say all that, uh, I also want you to understand that the rest of the book of Revelation, God is going to unveil and reveal four different accounts of this thing called the tribulation period that lead up to the second coming of Christ. And that's a mouthful. <laughs> and, and listen, you would maybe sit here and say, man, okay, that sounds really weird. Why would God give us four accounts of the same thing that's going to happen in the future? Well, God gave us four accounts of the first coming of Christ through the books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so God is a consistent God. God is an orderly God. He gave you four accounts of his first coming in the Gospels. And now he gives us four accounts of the events leading up to his second coming in the book of Revelation. And, and maybe you're here this morning and you say, man, that, that's, that's, man, that's a lot to take in. I haven't even had two cups of coffee yet, and I get it. But let me help you also understand that we've spent 32 sermons studying to get to this point in the book of Revelation. And so, uh, man, if, if, that, if those statements take you by surprise, if they leave you confused, or, or maybe, man, I'm not really sure I'm with you on that, you would do well to go back and spend about 32 hours of study in Revelations chapter 1 through 3 
so you can get caught up. And it's only 32 hours of study. And so by next week, you should have it. Okay, so, and so, and so that's our introduction this morning because this morning we're going to finish out chapter 4. And listen, John is in the third heaven, as the Bible calls it, the very throne room of God. We're not a cult. That's not weird. It's the third heaven because God calls his throne room heaven. He calls outer space heaven. He calls our sky that the birds and the planes fly in heaven. So John is in the third heaven. And what we saw last week was that John experienced the very throne room of God. As a matter of fact, last week when we read Revelation chapter 4, we saw that everything mentioned in that throne room centered on the very throne of God. As a matter of fact, when you read the description of everything that we studied last week, John talks about the one that sits on the throne, and there are some things round about the throne, and out of the throne came some things, and before the throne were some things, and in the midst of the throne were some things. And the point is that, man, the throne of God is the central focus of all heaven. And so because it's the central focus of all heaven, it ought to be the central focus of all creation, and it is. And because it's the central focus of all of heaven and all of a creation, the truth is it ought to be the central focus of your life and my life. That the main thing that is the main thing about my life is not me at all, but it's actually the very throne of God where Jesus Christ sits and rules and reigns in all of his glory and with all of authority. And, and, and we saw that last week. We saw that the centrality of God's throne is the point. And then last week, as, as John begins to explain this throne, he says, listen, there was one that was sitting on the throne. He was like a jasper and a sard in stone. And, and we looked at those, those colors of those stones, and we, we understood last week that those stones actually point to the person of Christ. That sard in stone was the first stone in the Old Testament high priest garment. He's the first. And we saw that the jasper stone is the last stone on the high priest garment in the Old Testament. And, and, and Christ is also the last, right? He's the first and the last. He's the beginning and the ending. He's the alpha and the omega. And those colors represent Christ. They point us to the person of Christ. And, and, and John says even that throne had a, a, a rainbow that was round about it like emerald. And, and we went back and we studied that emerald also, man, it's green. And that rainbow was not like any other rainbow. It's a perfect circle around the throne of God. And it represents the tribe of Judah, which literally means praise. And, and so we, we talked about how last week, when we see God's throne biblically, we understand Christ biblically. You see, the problem in modern Christianity is not that we don't worship Christ or have a relationship with Christ. The problem in modern Christianity is, is that we may have a worship of Christ or a relationship with a Christ that's not biblical. Because, because if our understanding of who Christ is is not based on the authority of the Word of God, then the God that I worship is the God that I've made up between my ears. We have to have a biblical understanding of Christ so that our, our, our worship will be focused to the right person. And so we saw that last week. And then, and then last week we were introduced some, to some characters that John saw in verse 4 before the throne, there were four and twenty elders sitting on four and twenty seats. And, and last week I told you, man, I'm, I'm not 100% sure who those people are. Uh, man, they could be a picture of the church. They could be the 12 apostles and the 12 patriarchs of, of the nation of Israel. And, and listen, their personality, there's no short, uh, short way to say it. There's just a lot of 
conflicting information on who those 24 elders are. But here's what I do know about those 24 elders. They had a right posture. Like, we may not know exactly who they are, but we know what they did was absolutely right. Because, listen, before the throne, the Bible says that they fell down and they worshiped God. And so whatever and whoever those 24 elders are, and again, they had white raiment, they had crowns of gold, they had harps, they had golden vials full of odors, they sang a new song. I said last week, you know they're not Baptists because they were singing a new song, so that joke's still pretty good this week. So, so whoever they are, man, they have a right posture before God's throne. And the reason they have a right posture is because they understand who's on the throne. You see, you see, your posture may not be right because you really don't understand who's sitting on the throne. And so we learned that last week. And then, and then we saw last week that there was a lot of commotion coming out of the, the throne. There were lightnings and thunders and voices. And, and man, listen, all of those things are symbolic and representative of God's presence all the way through the Scriptures. God's presence and God's voice. And, and John is experiencing it. He's hearing these lightnings and thunderings and voices. And, and literally, it, it shows us the power of God's Word in our life. And when you have the, the throne in focus, the ability to hear God's voice will be right. Yeah. Uh, some of us struggle in our, in our walk with God. We don't feel like God's speaking to us. And the reason we don't feel like God's speaking to us is because we're not really focused on the throne. Yeah. And you're hearing a lot of noise, but what you're not hearing is necessarily God's Word. And so every time you open the Bible, every time you sit in a discipleship meeting, every time you sit in church, man, you ought to be able to visualize yourself before the very throne of God to hear His Word into your life. And, and when you have the throne in focus, man, your ability to hear God's voice is going to be right. And then lastly, we were introduced last week to some, some weird creatures, man. There were these four beasts, and each of them had a different face, and they had six wings, and and again, this is all review, but last week, man, we said they were, there were some interesting creatures in the midst of this throne, and I believe they are the seraphim that we find in Isaiah chapter 6. And what they did was that they cried a very specific phrase, day and night before the throne of God. What they cried was, holy, holy, holy. And, and, and listen, as powerful as God is, as, as amazing as God is, as, as if we were to take the time and talk about all the different attributes that God has, God is love, God is light, God is all these different things. But the one attribute that is magnified in the scriptures itself threefold is God's holiness. Is God's holiness. And man, that's the one that we're least comfortable with. But that's the one that, that creation itself magnifies the most. And these created beings, these seraphim, are crying continually, holy, holy, holy before the throne of God. And listen, when we have a right focus of the throne, then the reality of God's holiness is going to be right in our life. And if we understand God's holiness, then, then we're going to have a desire to be holy as He is holy, right? And, and so that's your, your five-minute breakdown from last week's message. And so this morning... By God's grace, we want to get through the rest of Revelation chapter 4. And this morning, the message is entitled, The Worship at the Throne. And so I want to read Revelation 4, 9 to 11. I want to pray again, because I need it. And then, uh, and then we'll get into the text and we'll be done this morning. So look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 9. It says, And when those beasts, those four beasts that we mentioned earlier, give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, 
the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and they worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Father, we need you this morning. God, I pray again, you bless your word. Uh, Lord, it has the power to transform our life. God, help us right now uh, to position ourselves before your throne in our heart and mind. And Lord, as your word comes forth, God, help us to respond rightly. Uh, we want to hear from you. God, I'm a weak vessel, and I pray that you just move me out of the way, Father, and speak in spite of me. May we, we hear your word clearly this morning. We need it, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're going to spend a few minutes looking at the, the closing scene, so to speak, of, of chapter 4. And at, after all the amazing things that we were introduced to the last two weeks out of chapter 4, what we see at the very end of this chapter is actually worship occurring at the very throne of God. And, and so listen, when we have a, a clear focus of God's throne, we need to understand that our worship and a right reaction out of our life is going to come forth. And there's a lot of ways to teach this passage of Scripture, but the more I, I studied it and thought on it prayed over it, I was like, man, you know what? This is just about worshiping God. And so let's learn some things together. Number one, here's the first point for study this morning, is biblical worship has a foundation of thanksgiving. It has a, a foundation of thanksgiving. And I want you to go back to verse 9, because it's very interesting to me. It says, when those four beasts give glory and honor and thanks... To him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever. You see, something is about to happen from those creatures and those 24 elders, but it begins with these beasts giving glory, honor, and thanks to him that sits on the throne. And again, we said that those, those four beasts, I believe, are seraphim, because Isaiah chapter 6 has a description of, of similar beasts that also have six wings, like these creatures have six wings. Isaiah saw those creatures before the very throne of God. I think we've got that, that passage. Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 3. Yeah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain or with two, he covered his face. With twain or two, he covered his feet. With twain or two, he did fly. One cried, one to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And, and, and some people would say that those beasts in Revelation are the cherubim, which you find in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. I find it very interesting that cherubim only have four wings, seraphim have six wings, and four and six are different. So if I ask you for six dollars and you give me four dollars, that's different. And so I'm telling you, man, anybody can be a pastor. All right, I just, I'm just trying to encourage all of you. Like if you can Put math together. Okay, so, so yeah, I'm joking. But, but it is interesting. There, there, there is a strong argument maybe for cherubim, but again, they, they do have different numbers of wings. Either way, here's what I know. These four beasts are giving three things to the one sitting on the throne. Number one, they're giving him glory. That means that they're giving him dignity because he's worthy of praise. Christ is worthy of our praise. He's glorious, and he's worthy of all dignity He's, he's worthy of all recognition. Number two, they're giving him honor. And honor means that they're esteeming him very precious. He's of great price, of great value. And then thirdly, they're giving him thanksgiving 
And that means they're grateful because he's worthy of thanksgiving. Now, now what's interesting is when we read about the 24 elders, those three things are different. Because the 24 elders give to, to Christ glory and honor and power. And so the order changes, the words change. Well, why do they change? Because biblical worship has to start with thanksgiving. That's why. It has to begin with thanksgiving. And, 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 and listen, can I just tell you, as we begin this worship service, we've already began. So maybe I should have preached first and had the music later. But man, listen, what makes it biblical and unique and right is that your worship includes thanksgiving. Okay, so, so you're not feeling me yet, so let me, let me just compare some Scripture with Scripture. Because when you study the word thanksgiving, the first mention of it is back in Leviticus chapter 7, and it's connected with this thing called the peace offering, which is very interesting. How many of you love the book of Leviticus? Nobody. Okay, okay, two spiritual people. God bless you both. You, you had to raise your hand because you knew nobody else would. Okay, so... But if you read through the book of Leviticus, it's the book of the priesthood, right? It, it unfolds all the sacrifices, the priestly order of Aaron and his sons. In the book of Leviticus, there are actually five offerings that, that are revealed in the beginning of the book. The burnt offering, the meat offering, or meal offering, the, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. So when we study Thanksgiving, we actually find it connected to the peace offering, Leviticus 7, verse 11. It says, this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he shall offer to the Lord. If he offer it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, unleavened cakes mingled with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil and cakes mingled with oil of fine flour fried. Okay, and, and, and so as you study these offerings... You need to know that three of those offerings were voluntary, two were required. The sin offering and the trespass offering are mandatory. If you sin, you had to offer the offering. If you trespassed against God, you had to offer the offering. But the burnt offering and the, and the peace offering and the meat offering were voluntary. You could do them out of your own free will, and in this case, you could do it as an offering of thanksgiving. And as you study those offerings, man, can I just tell you, the three that were voluntary were a sweet savor in God's nostrils. The two that were mandatory that deal with our sin and our trespass were not a sweet savor to God. The three that were voluntary could be offered by the, 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 the priest's sons, Aaron, Aaron's sons. But the two that were required had to be offered by the high priest himself. And so, and so this, this thing of thanksgiving is connected back to this peace offering. Leviticus 22 and verse 29 says, When you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving unto the Lord, offer it at your own will. It's a voluntary thing. And can I just tell you, biblical worship is a voluntary thing. Ain't nobody make you do it. Ain't nobody going to make you do it. Nobody's going to beg you enough to have a right heart toward God. Nobody's going to be able to twist your arm and make you give God the glory and the honor and the thanks that he's due. Nobody can do that. It's a voluntary free will offering that you offer to God based on your understanding of who he is and what you're thankful for from his life to you. 
That peace offering that we read about in Leviticus points, as all the offerings do, they point to the person of Christ. And you need to understand that the only reason we can have peace with God is through the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20 says, Having made peace through the blood of His cross by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself by Him, I say, whether they be things on earth or things in heaven. Listen, it's through the blood of Christ that we can have peace with God. And so because He gave Himself a peace offering, can I just tell you, it's only reasonable that we give Him thanksgiving. It's only reasonable that we're thankful for His sacrifice that made peace for us. Man, and and so get this key in your notes. Look, thanksgiving should be the basis upon which we worship. It's the ground level. That's why we struggle many times in our true biblical worship of God because we don't start here. We might have it in the middle or at the end or not at all. But I'm telling you, it's not biblical worship unless you come into God's presence with thanksgiving. And those four beasts illustrate that for us. So as we study the Word of God, thanksgiving always comes first. And without it, worship is not biblical. So let me give you a few examples. Psalm 100 and verse 4 says, Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name. You see, you don't just run into the throne room of God and say, God, here's what I need. Here's what I want. Here's what I demand. You actually actually humbly go in with an attitude of thanksgiving for what God's already done. That's how you enter into His gates. That's how you enter into His courts. Look at Psalm 95, verse 2. Let us come before His presence, listen, with thanksgiving. And make a joyful noise unto Him with songs. Man, what what comes first? Thanksgiving. Psalm 116 and verse 17, I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God. That was Psalm 147 verse 7. I think I skipped a verse. Psalm 116 verse 17, I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call upon the name of the Lord. Here's what's interesting. When you read about that peace offering in Leviticus, As soon as it was offered, it was consumed. Which means that what you offered today has no meaning at all tomorrow. And what you offered today has nothing to do about yesterday. It had to be continual. And can I just tell you, like like our attitude of thanksgiving is the same way. God is worthy of thanksgiving. God is worthy of glory and honor and thanksgiving. Oh, and by the way, He's worthy today. You say, well, I already thanked Him for my salvation. I did that when I got saved 40 years ago. Well, He's worthy of that today. He's worthy of a peace offering today. He's worthy of thanksgiving today. As a matter of fact, how how can you thank God today for what He's done in your life? And it ought to begin at salvation, by the way. Every single day. How can you enter into his gates with thanksgiving? I mean, listen, every one of us ought to take inventory of how amazing God is and what we have to be thankful for. And if you have kids, you know what I'm about to say, man. It's a struggle. Any parents in the room? Okay, I'll pray for you because uh, it's hard. If you have kids, you know what I'm about to say, and I'm not throwing my kids under the bus because I was the same kind of kid. You get what you get as a kid, And instead of being thankful, you just want more. 
It's just the next thing. What's the next thing that I can get for me? And the truth is, many of us are Christians that are just like our kids. And when a kid begins to say, man, thank you for what I got to do today, Dad. Thank you for what you bought me today, Dad. Thanks for having a house that I can actually sleep in, Dad. <laughs> and helping me with my laundry. and helping. Okay, when, when we have an attitude of thanksgiving, it kind of changes our, our outlook, right? And listen, as Christians, man, we are a lot like our snot-nosed bratty kids. Amen. Well, I mean, your kids, not mine, but whatever. <laughs> mine too? Okay, my wife's over here. She validated. She said it, it is our kid. Okay. <laughs> Prayerfully, my kids never watch the sermon, but <laughs> man, we just keep wanting and wanting and wanting, and we don't even stop to say, God, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for what you've done. I'm going to enter into your courts with thanksgiving. Man, we show up on a Sunday morning, and the truth is, we care about more what we're going to get out of it than giving God glory for what he's already done in our life. I mean, we wonder why our Christian culture is jacked up. We wonder why our ministry is jacked up. We wonder why our effectiveness as a witness is jacked up. It's because, man, we don't have biblical worship going on. We don't have a heart of thanksgiving for the one that sits on the throne. That is the foundation. That's where it begins. Okay, number two. So, so as we progress through this, this worship scene in, in, in the third heaven before the throne, number two, we see that biblical worship is expressed by sacrifice. And I want you to look at verse 10, because now these four beasts have begun giving glory and honor and thanks to the one that sits on the throne. And now... These 20 and four elders, they fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever. Listen, and they cast their crowns before the throne. And they're going to say some things, and we'll get to the things they say in, in a second. But here's what I want you to understand, that secondly, biblical worship is expressed in sacrifice. And, and again, man, if we had the time, we could, we could exhaust this portion of Scripture for three weeks I want you to know that these 24 elders had something very precious in their possession. Each of them had a crown of gold on their head. And that crown, listen, man, these aren't just any crowns. Like, this isn't the Burger King crown. You know what I'm saying? Like, like these are crowns of gold. They have great value. They're a great possession. They represent some type of authority or rulership, some type of worth, some type of position or power, and wealth. And, and listen, before the throne, they take that possession and they cast it before the throne. They're willing to give what they have. Okay, so we're going to hit this at two different angles. Number one, here's a question that, that we have to ask ourselves. What possessions are we preparing as an expression of praise? And as you study crowns in the Bible, many of you have been through discipleship, you understand that as a Christian, there are potentially crowns that can be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ, or at least a crown. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8 says, Paul, Paul at the end of his life and the end of his ministry says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them that love his appearing." And so Paul knew that he had, he had laid up treasure in heaven, at least a crown of righteousness, 
that Christ was going to give him as a righteous judge. And again, if these 24 elders are a picture and type of the church, you can make a devotional application of that. Can I just tell you that they took what had been given to them and gave it back to Christ? They sacrificed in an attitude of worship. So, so here's the question for us. Number one, what are we preparing now to be a sacrifice and offering of worship then? You see, the sad reality is that there will be some Christians that see the Lord face to face with nothing to offer. They've, they've lived in such a way they can't say that they live like the Apostle Paul, that they finished their course, that they kept the faith. And so henceforth, there won't be a laid up for them a crown of righteousness. And so listen, yeah, for sure, saved by the blood of, of the Lamb, absolutely. But li lived a life focused on self instead of sacrifice for the Lord. And at this day, when you're before the throne and the one that's worthy of all glory and honor and thanksgiving... He's worthy of worship. Well, there's nothing to give. That will be a shameful day. Because there's no treasure laid up in heaven for some Christian. By the way, Paul knew assuredly that he would receive this crown. Some people would say, well, you can't really know what we'll have to worship God. Well, Paul knew. He had confidence he had lived his life in a way that he was already a worshiper of God on this earth. And because of that, he knew that he had heavenly reward laid up in heaven. And so listen, you, you can be guaranteed a crown that you can sacrifice to the Lord. Secondly, and here's where I think, I think it's really going to land for, for a lot of us is, the, the second question is this, what possessions are we willing to part with as an expression of praise? What positions are we willing to part with as an expression of praise? Because listen, man, you might get a crown. You may have earthly possessions, things that God has blessed you with that you can use to bring honor and glory to Christ. What are you willing to part with and to sacrifice with so that God gets the glory out of your life? Those 24 elders didn't keep their crown. They gave it to the one who was worthy. I'm going to say some things, and you need to go ahead and anoint your ears with grace right now to hear it. But the reality is that there are some people that can't even praise God with a tithe. So there's a very small chance that God is going to get the fullness of your life when you can't even give 10%. You're not willing to part with the possessions that God has given you. You can't afford to, you can't afford to give that. You refuse to. And somehow you think your life is going to be a living sacrifice. Give me a break. You say, Jay, do you believe in tithing? Nope. I believe Christ deserves it all. I mean, he deserves it all. Listen, friends, he owns it all. He possesses it all. And he is worthy of it all. And so the problem for me and, and the problem for many of us is that we're not willing to part with a possession to bring Christ's glory in an attitude of sacrifice to worship. And, and I think it bleeds over into this third point because really we don't understand what Christ is worth. 
So here's the last point, and then we're going to transition to our, our, our observance of the Lord's Supper. But can I just tell you that biblical worship truly understands and emphasizes Christ's worth. Verse 11, because here's what those 24 elders said. As they fell down before God and they got in the position of worship, prostrate before the Lord, as they took their crowns and they cast them before the throne, here is what they understood that enabled them to do that. Verse 11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor, and not thanks now, Power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And again, you have to take note of the difference, because now what Christ is receiving is not glory, honor, and thanks, because it allowed us to enter in. The thanksgiving allowed us to enter in, but now Christ can receive glory, honor, and power, strength, might, rulership, virtue, because he's the only one worthy. What's interesting is when you study that phrase, or those phrases, glory and honor, you find glory and honor all the way through the Bible connected. But the only time that you find glory, honor, and power is in the book of Revelation. Because Christ finally gets all three that he deserves in the book of Revelation. Now, I'm not saying he's not powerful now, but I'm telling you, when he establishes his kingdom and rules from a righteous throne, Man, in that book of Revelation, Christ gets all three that he deserves. He gets all three that he deserves. Let me give you a couple of references. Revelation 5 and verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. Verse 13, And every creature which was in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and are such as that are in the sea, and them that are in them heard I, saying, Blessing, honor, and glory, and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever. You see it again in Revelation 7. Revelation 19, verse 1. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and honor, and power unto the Lord our God. Man, listen, he is worthy. As a matter of fact, this actually sets us up for next, the next chapter, Revelation chapter 5, because because all of Revelation chapter 5, there's a search for someone who's worthy to open a special book. And man, the, the, the question goes out amongst the people. Who is worthy to open the seals of this book? Who's worthy? There's nobody worthy. And then Revelation 5 verse 12 says, worthy is the Lamb. He's, he's worthy. He can open that book. Because nobody else is. So listen, when you understand Christ's worth, well, man, there's no expression of worship that's too much. Because your worship is rooted in really your worthship, meaning what is Christ really worth to you? What is Christ really worth? He's worth everything. That's why I have a problem tithing. He owns it all. That's why I don't have a problem serving. He owns it all. I don't have a problem studying. It's His time. It's His life. It's His Word. It's His Holy Spirit. It's His ministry. It's His church. 
It's his body to do whatever will, whatsoever he will to bring him glory. Worship is rooted in worship. What is Christ worth to you? And as, as we read this passage, man, John gives us at least three attributes to help us direct our worship. Number one, he helps us understand that Christ is eternal because it says that Christ liveth forever and ever. So he's eternal, man. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He is God. Number two, he's omnipotent because he has created all things. And man, all you have to do is go to Ephesians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 and verse 16, it says, By him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether it be thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. I mean, if it wasn't for Christ, the very atoms that hold your body together would separate. He allows you to consist through his power. And then number three, Christ has the preeminence. Because John says, for thy pre uh, the, those 24 elders say, for, for thy pleasure, they are and were created. So here's the key question as we, as we begin to wind this thing down. Do I exist for God's pleasure? Or does God exist for my pleasure? Don't answer out loud. But your, your expression of worship has everything to do with the way you answer that question. Does God exist for my pleasure or do I exist for the glory of God? And listen, make no mistake, we live in a culture that loves pleasures. As a matter of fact, we're, we're more interested in our pleasure than anything else. Let me give you some, some scripture to back that up. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 4 where Paul writes to Timothy, and he says in the last days, man, there's going to be some perilous times. And then he begins to describe what is absolutely the, the spiritual climate of our day and age. In verse 4, he says that people are going to be traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And it's not that people don't love God in the 21st century. It's just they love their pleasure more. Oh, well, I love the Lord, man. But, bro, I got golf. I mean, I got all my kids' ball games. Well, I got this, I got this new boat I got to buy. I got this house I got to... Okay, whatever. You can have a boat. You can have a night. Whatever. But the minute that you love pleasure more than loving God, well, you just realized and revealed that God exists for your pleasure. Then you existing for God's pleasure. And as you study the Bible, it's very interesting that, that when we study this thing of pleasure, living for our own pleasure is a synonymous with our lostness before we came to know Christ. As a matter of fact, when you study out what your life was like before Christ, God very clearly says that in your lostness, the person that you were most focused on was you. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasure, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. 
That's a summary of who you were as a lost person. You say, not me. Please. (laughs) But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward all men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life, not this life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which believe in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to all men. You see, you've got to figure out who it is that you exist for and who it is that God exists for. And, and listen, if the answer is for your pleasure, to get what you want out of life, can I just under, help you understand, you're acting like your lost person self. God doesn't exist for your pleasure. You exist for His pleasure. And if you have a problem with that, you have a problem with God. We okay? <laughs> number two, key warning number two, living for our pleasure always results in fruitlessness. And man, we don't have the time because we're out of time, but, but Luke chapter 8, the parable of the seed and the sower As God goes through and talks about the seed of God's word landing on four different types of ground, he says in chapter 8 and verse 14, they that fell among the thorns are they which after they've heard go forth and they're choked with the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. And that's modern Christianity. People that are saved, that have the seed of God's word in their heart, they've been born again, there's new life that has sprung up in their life, and yet the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life create unfruitfulness and a walk with God. But I come to church. Well, good for you. Proverbs 21, verse 17. He that loveth pleasure shall be a poor man, and he that loveth wine and oil shall not be rich. And, and listen, you say, well, you know, I love pleasure, but I'm wealthy. You won't be at the judgment seat of Christ. There'll be nothing to give, nothing to worship, nothing to sacrifice, nothing to, to, as a possession to offer the one on the throne. Because the danger is you live in a way that God exists for your pleasure. Let it not be so, brethren. God's given us an example in Revelation chapter 4 of what proper biblical worship looks like. It starts with thanksgiving. It's a a sacrifice, an expression of our our praise. And then ultimately, it brings God himself glory because he is worthy. He's the one that's worthy. And we have to refocus our mind to the, the reality of what God's word says. And so let me ask you to turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 because, because as we begin to prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, we have some things to be thankful for. You know, when we, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of what Christ has already done for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 34. Let me just remind us, this is, this is the passage that we always go to for, for Paul's instruction to the church concerning this ordinance. Paul says in verse 23, I've received of the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take ye, this is my body, 
which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he took also the cup when he had supped and said, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And so, man, listen, aren't you thankful? If you're, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, aren't you thankful for the peace offering through the body and blood of Jesus Christ? That's something to be thankful for that now... Through the New Testament and His blood, I can be forgiven of my sin and can have a right relationship with God in peace. Man, that's something to be thankful for. That's something to, to worship God about. That's something to uh, be willing to sacrifice any and everything to give Him glory because He alone is worthy. And then God warns us this morning that as we approach the Lord's table, we have to do it properly. Look at verse 27. It says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat of this bread and drink of this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And, and that, that word un, unworthily is an adverb. It's how we approach the Lord's table. God says, God says okay, the way in which we do this is, is critically important. So he tells us in verse 28 what we're to do. Let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And so as we, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper, man, God wants us to do inventory in our life. He wants us to examine ourselves. So don't look at your neighbor or your spouse. But man, God wants us to know in our heart, are we right with him? Are, are, are we exercising a biblical attitude of worship toward him? Have we examined ourselves, and is there anything in our life that needs to be dealt with now? And I think the, the Lord's Supper is a, a great reminder for all of us that, that we need to keep short accounts with the Lord. That, man, when our flesh takes over and, and we allow it to control our life and we make decisions that are contrary to the Word of God, man, the Lord's Supper is a reminder that we need to examine ourselves and judge ourselves so that we can get right with God. Don't take of the table unworthily. And then lastly, we need to take of the Lord, Lord's table fearfully. And I mean as in the fear of the Lord. Verse 30, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry for one, one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home that you come not together into condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. Man, listen, the Lord's table should be a reminder for us that God is not mocked. God is not mocked. Partaking unworthily for the Christian can result in weakness. It can result in sickness. It can result in sleep, and I don't mean during the service. I mean a dirt nap. Because the Lord takes His table serious. And so should we. Man, we ought to be thankful for what Christ has done, right? We, we need to be thankful. We need to be desiring to let the Lord live his life through us, to be glorified in our life, to be holy before the Lord so that we can please him. And so at this time, if you're a live stream viewer, we're going to let you dismiss because uh, obviously we can't do digital uh, Lord's Supper through the camera lens. So thank you guys for joining us. And we're going to sign you guys off and, and hopefully you'll come back next week. For those of us in the room, man, uh, we're